This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back. It's season five on The Rounds Table. And we are very excited to kick off a brand new season with a brand new format. As most of you listeners would know from the finale, we are introducing a new team of rotating hosts who are going to continue to keep you up to date on the latest and most important medical research. But in traditional fashion for our first episode, I'm going to lead you through it. And we've brought back a familiar voice on the rounds table, our good old friend, Dr. Paxton Bach. Paxson, what the heck have you been up to all summer here in Canada and North America? Well, thanks, Karen. I'm happy to be back for another season. Summer's been good. I've officially finished residency, so that's exciting, and I'm very excited to be back with a new season and part of this rotating team of guest hosts. Well, I'm excited to see what the future holds for the rounds table. It's an exciting time. But as you know, as you've always known, I don't like to mince words too much law around here, so let's get down to it. Paxton, why don't you introduce the article that you've decided to lead off Season 5 with? Alright, sounds good to me, Kieran. Let's get right into it. I've decided to lead off this season with an article from The Lancet that potentially has huge implications for perioperative medicine. This is the MANAGE trial, or Dabigatran in patients with myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery, an international randomized placebo-controlled trial. This paper was published in The Lancet in June of 2018 by P.J. Devereaux et al. Okay. And in his our usual fashion, tell me, Paxson, what is the bottom line for this particular trial? So the bottom line here, Kieran, is that in this large randomized placebo-controlled trial, the use of dabigatran in patients who have experienced myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery, aka MINS, significantly improved a composite outcome of major vascular events with a number needed to treat of just 24. Wow, dabigatran's making us come back. It's a war of the oral anticoagulants these days. Tell me, Paxson, why did you choose this article? <laughs> yeah, I thought the same thing, Kieran. Dibiotran is still holding on and carving out its niche amongst the direct oral anticoagulants. So I chose this trial because perioperative medicine is an area that's very much on the rise within GIM, within general internal medicine in Canada, um, but also extends to so many other fields, including anesthesia, general surgery, family medicine. Overall, we're increasingly recognizing the importance of this perioperative period and some of the potential harms that patients can experience during these fairly significant life events. There has been some excitement around some big-name trials in the past few years, including several that come from this very same Canadian group, including the POISE series. Unfortunately, one of the criticisms or concerns that's been leveled against the field of perioperative medicine is that as much as we're dramatically improving our ability to screen and prognosticate for patients, there are still no real evidence-based interventions to help improve uh, post-operative cardiac outcomes. All right. Well, we're always excited for new stuff coming to the table, especially in a field that has Not had a lot, as you said, for a while. So tell me, Paxton, how did they go about conducting this large trial? So, Kieran, the trial design here is fairly straightforward. This was a large, international, randomized, placebo-controlled trial taking place at 84 different centers around the world in 19 different countries. Okay, and who were the patients they were looking to include in this study? So this trial enrolled adults who were at least 45 years old who had undergone non-cardiac surgery and experienced MINS or myocardial injury in non-cardiac surgery within the past 35 days following their surgery. In the context of this study, MINS was defined as having an elevated troponin with either ischemic signs or symptoms, ischemic ECG changes, or a new ischemic abnormality on cardiac imaging. In other words, what you and I might 
define as an NSTEMI, or having an isolated elevated troponin without another identifiable cause. Some examples of identifiable causes included AFib, uh, pulmonary embolism, sepsis, etc. Okay, and what about key exclusion criteria for individuals they didn't wish to include in this trial? So again, the exclusion criteria were fairly straightforward, pretty reasonable. Patients with a pre-existing hemorrhagic disorder were excluded. Those who had a pre-existing indication for anticoagulation, such as AFib, were excluded. If the surgeon or treating physician felt that anticoagulation was too high risk based on their surgery, then it was excluded. If they had a GFR of less than 35, sorry, they were excluded. Or if prophylactic dose anticoagulation was indicated for another reason. Right. So like, say, for example, uh, post-operative hip surgery or knee replacement surgery, they might go on one of those medications for prophylaxis. Precisely. Okay. So we're taking a bunch of adults who are undergoing fairly significant non-cardiac surgery and have experienced some sort of myocardial injury. And now we're looking at how to treat that. So what do they do to treat that MINS? So the intervention here, as I mentioned, was dabigatran. So patients were randomized to either dabigatran at the 110 milligram PO twice daily dose or to placebo. As in the previous POIS studies, patients were actually randomized in what they call a 2 by 2 factorial design so that 50% of patients also received omeprazole versus placebo. In other words, 25% of the patients got dabigatran only, 25% got dabigatran and omeprazole, 25% got omeprazole only, and 25% got dual placebos. The results of most of that omeprazole data, however, are going to be published in a different paper. So for the purposes of this article, most of that can be ignored. So it's, it's kind of a clever design. You're, you're building in the additional prophylaxis for GI bleeding secondary to dabigatran by including omeprazole. Yeah, they can include omeprazole as potential prophylaxis. And also considering the amount of effort that it takes to coordinate one of these large international trials, they really kind of get a two for one here and can look at omeprazole separately and its perioperative effect as well. Okay, quick question. The individuals who experienced MINS were such that the elevation in troponin or symptoms were not felt to be due to AFib, sepsis, or PE. It seems to me that could introduce some subjectivity to an interpretation of somebody's MINS if you wanted to say yes, this was or no, it was not due to some coexisting condition like sepsis. I think you're right, Kieran. There is that element of subjectivity there. Certainly, the rise in troponin has to be felt by the diagnosing physician not to be due to another clearly identifiable cause. But I really can't propose a better way of doing that other than leaving up to the physician's judgment. And maybe more importantly, that really does reflect probably our modern day practice as well in that we get to decide whether we think something's a true mens or just due to something like uncontrolled AFib. Fair enough. And in real life, we do that all the time anyway. So Okay, what were the primary outcomes that they were measuring in the managed trial? So as I mentioned, this trial included a composite outcome of major vascular complications. So this primary composite outcome was composed of, of vascular mortality, non-fatal myocardial infarction, non-hemorrhagic stroke, peripheral arterial thrombosis, amputation, or symptomatic venous thromboembolism. Now, for the purposes of this trial, they additionally included a primary composite safety outcome. So this was a composite outcome of potentially negative consequences that was composed of life-threatening bleeds, of major bleeds, or of critical organ bleeding. Now, in terms of their secondary analysis, they did look at the individual components of each of these primary composite outcomes, as well as numerous other secondary outcomes and secondary safety outcomes, but we can get to that in the results. Okay, I think those are important outcomes and make sense in the context of an anticoagulant. But wait, something happened. Please tell us. 
Yes, so this is an important thing to note, is that this trial was originally intended to recruit 3,200 patients and follow them for one year, but unfortunately they had a lot of difficulty recruiting and enrolling in the trial. So partway through they underwent a protocol change. Now this was made without unblinding the previous results, but it still is a study change that's made on the fly, so to speak. So what they ended up doing was reducing the sample size to 1,750 patients and adding both amputation as well as symptomatic venous thromboembolism to the primary outcome. Not necessarily a fatal flaw by any means, but something important to keep in mind when we start changing our protocols midway. And so we're going to predict that if you're reducing your sample size, if you found no difference, it might be just because you weren't powered to do so. But I think we'll find something different as per your bottom line. So take us through the main findings of the study, Paxson. All right. So if we get into the results of this study, um, we'll talk about the patients they enrolled. They did manage to recruit 1,754 patients, and they were followed for a mean of 16 months. Impressively, 99% of patients completed all of the follow-ups, so that is really worth noting considering they follow them every six months for up to two years. The average patient that was enrolled was seven years old. They were 50% male, 50% female, and they typically experienced MINS on post-op day one. The surgeries that they had undergone were predominantly orthopedic or general surgeries. Those made up more than 50% of the surgeries. And lastly, 91% of what they ended up defining as MINS were actually events that occurred without any symptoms or signs and were picked up on screening. Right. And tell me about the ability of people to tolerate the bigotry. And it does have some intolerable side effects. Yes, you're correct, Kieran. So unfortunately, 46% of the dabigatran patients ended up discontinuing their study medication early, while 43% of the placebo patients, interestingly, also stopped before the end of the trial. On average, they stopped 80 days after starting the dabigatran and only 41 days after starting their placebo medication. They provided some details on why patients stopped, and more than 50% of them were just due to quote-unquote patient request. For those who did remain on the study drug itself, though, the average time on medication was approximately 15 months for both. Fascinating. So you're seeing people are using the actual drug, even though they don't necessarily know it, for twice as long as people who are taking placebo. I wonder if that's going to affect your primary outcome. Yeah, and again, I will point out that for those who did remain on the medication throughout the trial, it was equivalent between DABI and placebo, and they remained on it for 15 months. But quite interesting how many people did come off the medication. Okay, so let's get us to the meat of the matter. What was the actual primary outcome in the managed trial? All right, so getting to the actual results here, the primary outcome occurred in 11% of dabigatran patients over those 16 months and 15% of placebo patients. So that's an absolute risk reduction of 4% or a number needed to treat of 24. So actually a pretty impressive result overall, I'd say. Absolutely, that is an impressive result. Okay, so what about the counterbalancing safety outcome? Yeah, so as far as those safety outcomes go, dabigatran did not increase the event rate of the primary safety outcome, but it did result in higher rates of clinically non-significant lower GI bleeding as well as minor bleeding in those secondary safety analyses. There was no difference in any of the outcomes with omeprazole. All right, Paxson, so reflect on the managed trial for us, will you? What are your thoughts? So, Kieran, I think this is a really interesting paper, and I think it asks a lot of questions. One of the things that I want to point out first and foremost is that in this trial, 10 to 15% of patients ended up having complications post-op 
which again confirms the significance of MINS as a really poor prognostic factor. And that's not even including in this trial the 9% of potential eligible patients who died before they were able to be randomized into one of the two arms. So this highlights the significance of MINS and really the importance of us trying to develop interventions for these patients who have this post-op prognostic marker. So in terms of this trial itself, there's a few limitations that I think are really important to note. Uh, so we have already mentioned the high dropout rate as being one of the potential limitations of this trial. And again, we'll circle back to that change in protocol that they did part way. So as I mentioned, not a fatal flaw, but something that's important to keep in mind because it really makes me anxious to see protocols changing midway through different studies. A few other small things. We know by previous observational data that both ASA and statins may prevent death and major cardiac complications in these MINS patients. But in this particular trial, only 74% of patients were actually taking ASA or another antiplatelet agent, and only 69% were on a statin. So that itself may highlight a missed opportunity here. Now there's also that observation that uh, at least some of the change in this primary outcome uh, is being driven by a reduction in non-hemorrhagic stroke, which asks the question if some of this difference we're seeing uh, may be actually just driven by undiagnosed AFib in these patients. Okay, Paxson, so in 2018 now with the results of the MANAGE trial, what do you think that we should take away and learn from this and how should we apply it to our practice? So I'm just going to restate the bottom line here, Kieran, and that is that in this large multi-center randomized control trial, the use of dabigatran in patients with MINS reduced a composite outcome of major vascular events with a number needed to treat of 24. So how do we interpret this? Well, let me first say that there's both biologic plausibility in terms of how these direct anticoagulants may reduce cardiac complications, as well as a precedent here. And we've seen the impact of DOACs on reducing cardiovascular events in other recent trials, including ones featured on the show, such as the COMPASS trial, which we did just last year. I do wonder if it's a complication of the MINS itself that's being prevented by the anticoagulation, or if maybe this is just a population who is at higher risk and they're failing a stress test of sorts in the surgery that highlights them as a candidate that would benefit from more aggressive anticoagulation. I think that despite some limitations which we have mentioned here in this trial, that overall it's still well conducted and I do think it's going to start changing some people's practice. Now I have to say that me myself, I tend to be a bit of a late adopter so I'm not sure how aggressively I'm going to jump on board with this, but it's definitely something that I'm going to be considering the next time I'm on our perioperative service and seeing these MINS patients and certainly something that I look forward to discussing more with my colleagues and seeing some more literature come out. Yeah, I have a tendency to agree, and maybe it's just inertia that's keeping me from buying into it completely, because as you said, there's no major fatal flaws, although there are some important asterisks. And then the other question that in my mind is, all right, if I start this drug in individuals who experience MINS perioperatively, when do I stop it? Because looking at the curves, things continue to separate over time, and are we then putting people on oral anticoagulants for the rest of their life because they've had MINS, or is this a time-limited intervention? And I don't know the answer to that. Kieran, they didn't actually tell us when the events occurred in this trial. And I think that really, again, speaks to that question of, are we intervening on some post-op complication here? Or again, is this a stress test that they failed? Yeah. Well, all I'll say is I hope that my stress test is not a surgery, but more likely a more formal stress test at some point in my life. Anyways, thank you, Paxson. Great article. Great way to kick off the season. Let's move on to the study that I chose to cover for this week. 
you can guess it's going to be a perioperative week on the rounds table here. And so I am looking at the subjective assessment of functional capacity in individuals prior to them undergoing major non-cardiac surgery. This was also published in The Lancet in June of 2018. And it's an interesting study for the show, I thought. Yeah, I think this is a great choice, Kieran. I think back on how many of those circular discussions I've had with patients trying to actually hammer down their functional capacity. And I think it's a deceptively easy-sounding question that can really open up a can of worms. So tell us, what was the bottom line for this trial? So this was a multicenter prospective cohort study, so not a randomized trial. And it included 1,400 individuals who were scheduled for major non-cardiac surgery. And what the study did was to compare different screening tools in the assessment of exercise capacity for these individuals. And it found that what we currently use, subjective assessment of functional capacity, was only 19% sensitive in predicting the risk of death or complications after major surgery. Therefore, this study strongly suggests that the subjective assessment of functional capacity as a method of screening should not be employed in the assessment of perioperative risk. Wow, 19% is not a ringing endorsement. Not as a screening tool. So Karen, tell us a little bit more background here. Why did you choose this article personally for the podcast? Well, first and foremost, it was a nice compliment to the managed trial so as a perioperative week on the rounds table, so that was natural. Second, this is actually a fairly controversial area in the world of perioperative medicine. So if you look at the 2014 American Heart Association guidelines on perioperative assessment, they recommend using subjectively reported assessment of functional capacity. And then in 2016, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society came out and said, do not do that because there is no evidence to support that subjective functional capacity is an accurate screening tool. And we're sort of left with guidelines that are based on limited evidence. And so this study sought to help inform that evidence and those recommendations. And so I think that this is a great week to, on the show to talk about an area of medicine that, as you mentioned, applies to general internists, to anesthetists, to family physicians, to a whole host of surgeons, and to several different types of doctors across the board. And what a way to start a season. Awesome. That sounds great. So let's get into it then. Tell us a little bit more about the design of this study. Large undertaking, very impressive, multi-center international prospective cohort study, 25 hospitals around the world, five in Canada, seven in the United Kingdom, 10 in Australia, and three in New Zealand. Large study with good international representation. Tell us about the patients who are enrolled. Yeah, similar to the MINS trial, except that they obviously didn't experience MINS, but they were at risk for it. So they included adults that were at least 40 years of age who were scheduled for major non-cardiac surgery. And these individuals were deemed to have one or more risk factors for cardiac complications. Those are simple things that you and I would know. History of heart failure, stroke, diabetes, peripheral vascular disease, etc. Your usual risk for cardiac complications. And that's it. That's really who they were looking at to include in this study. So that sounds pretty reasonable, like a fairly representative group. And what was the exposure here? What was the, what was the primary question behind this trial? So the primary exposure was to measure this subjectively assessed functional capacity. And the way in which it's done as a standard process is to convert reported activity into metabolic equivalents of tasks. And so these were actually mainly anesthetists in the study in the preoperative assessment clinic. And they graded individuals as poor functional capacity, that was METs less than 4, moderate, so METs between 4 and 10, or good, uh, greater than 10 METs. 
And this is one, I think, a really important point and a caveat. If the physician was uncertain of an individual's functional capacity, say, for example, because they had crippling knee osteoarthritis, were due for a total knee arthroplasty, but you were not able to tell if the limitation in their metabolic uh, equivalence was due to that knee pain or a lack of cardiovascular reserve, they were all graded as poor METs overall. Okay, so they're sort of erring to the conservative side there. I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. The other thing that they did then was to look at a bunch of other questionnaires so that hopefully we could identify screening tools that are of use if the subject of functional capacity assessment was not useful. So they measured the Duke Activity Status Index, which is short form the DASI questionnaire. Everybody underwent cardiopulmonary exercise testing, so that was your objective measure of somebody's functional exercise capacity. And they also measured NT-proBNP concentrations, which if you're familiar with the Canadian cardiovascular guidelines, there are recommendations to measure that preoperatively as part of a risk stratification process. After the surgery, all individuals had daily electrocardiograms and blood tests to measure troponin and creatinine concentrations until the third post-operative day or hospital discharge, which is also a recommendation in the cardiovascular guidelines on monitoring individuals at increased risk for MINS. So overall, it sounds like a pretty thorough pre- and post-op workup for these patients. So, Kieran, for the listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with the idea of METs, can you Give us a bit of a reference point here. Walk us through what these METs really translate to. Maybe give us a bit of perspective on what these numbers mean. Yeah, right. So if you're not familiar with this kind of assessment, so less than three, what we would call light intensity activities, sleeping, watching TV, sitting at your desk, typing, a slow walk on level ground. Those are all light activities. Moderate intensity activities, METs between three to six, Bicycling on a stationary bike, 50 watts if you measured it, walking at close to 3 miles an hour or almost 5 kilometers an hour, doing some home exercise, some slow biking on the way to work or for pleasure, those are the uh, moderate. And then vigorous intensity activities, so greater than 6 mets. If you jogged in general, if you did calisthenics like push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, you did you know skip rope jumping any kind of vigorous activity then those are high intensity activities with high met rating so traditionally i was taught that four mets was sort of uh, our cutoff as to when we should start to be maybe concerned about somebody's functional tolerance so can you give us an idea of what that equates to right and that four was thought previously at least that that was sort of the critical threshold by which if you're able to do four or more METs you're probably at lower risk and less than that you're probably at higher risk and so you know things like if they're able to go up two flights of stairs for example without any limitation or uh, shortness of breath or anything else that would be more than four METs if they go for a light jog of course they e- easily meet their their criteria for four or more METs. So that was sort of the, the traditional teaching we'll see if that bears out here so tell us what were the primary outcomes from this study? Yeah and I'll just say one more thing about the METs you can see though from how you decide to ask the questions about what their physical activity is just how variable and subjective an interpretation might be when a patient is reporting that to you and how you're interpreting it. So that's a key point. Primary outcomes here, Paxton, were simple. Death or myocardial infarction within 30 days after surgery assessed in all participants who underwent cardiopulmonary exercise testing and also had their surgery. Really, we're looking for predicting major outcomes. Um, That's what patients are most concerned with. I think a totally reasonable primary outcome. 
They also looked at the development of MINS, myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery, as a secondary outcome. And I think those are the ones to highlight for this particular study. They then measured the prognostic accuracy, let's call it, for these different measurement techniques and then reported those overall. All right, so that sounds pretty fair. So let's get to the heart of this then. Tell us what the main findings of this study were. So just a description of the study cohort for you. 65-year-old male is a typical individual. About half of the individuals had hypertension. 12% had coronary artery disease. 1% had heart failure. 4% had stroke. 19% had diabetes. And 88% had normal GFR. If you're familiar with using risk stratification scores like the revised cardiac risk index, the average score was about 1 to 2. And depending on which guidelines you use to estimate perioperative cardiovascular risk, that's a somewhere between a 1 and 6% chance of having some sort of major cardiac event following the surgery. As far as the medications they were on, just under 20% were on a beta blocker, almost 40% were on an ACE inhibitor, and these patients were undergoing typical major surgeries, intraperitoneal surgeries, orthopedic surgeries, or urological or gynecological surgeries. So that really does sound to me like kind of the average patient that I might see in one of our periop clinics. Yeah, I think that's the volume of the patients that I see most often as well. Okay, so tell us about the findings. So overall, only 8% of the whole cohort were assigned to have poor metabolic functional equivalents. So a very actually low rate of individuals who were not fit, probably appropriate because there's naturally a selection of fitter individuals to undergo surgery, but does sort of push the bias of the spectrum towards a higher fit level of individuals. Similarly, on that vein, only 2% of the entire cohort experienced the primary outcome of death or myocardial infarction. A good thing, I would, I would say, but also lower than was expected for the study itself. And the meat of the matter here is that there was no association, none, between preoperative subjective functional capacity scores and assessment and any of the primary or secondary outcomes. Furthermore, those subjective measures did not correlate to objective measures of fitness using the cardiopulmonary exercise testing. What they did find, however, was that both the DASI scores and BNP measurements were correlated with poor exercise capacity using objective measures and were associated with the outcome. They improved the prediction of cardiovascular risk above and beyond what the revised cardiac risk index did alone. So Kieran, any other interesting points or, or observations you want to make around this trial before we get to the bottom line? Yeah, the consent rate was only 27% from the individuals who were approached to participate in this study. Now, I think, and as the authors point out in their discussion, it's not unusual for studies like these, especially when you have to undergo something like a cardiopulmonary exercise test, which is no walk in the park, and you have anxious patients who are waiting surgery and just want to get it over with, and now they go to, are told they have to go ride a bike for a while and do a bunch of measurements. Um, but I think, you know, despite that, it does raise some questions in my mind about, let's call it a healthy volunteer effect for this study, who are less likely to experience complications, who have higher METs overall to begin with. And this may just affect the ability uh, of these tools to predict the outcomes, especially when you're in less active individuals. Nevertheless, I don't think that should fundamentally change our interpretation of this study 
And I think that this really helps to strongly suggest that those functional assessment capacity uh, reported metrics are just not helpful. All right, then, Kieran, give us the finale here. What are the main takeaways from this trial? Well, I think, uh, as you've heard me say already a few times, the use of subjective assessment of functional capacity in the traditional way we do it, which is to convert to metabolic equivalents, is not helpful in predicting perioperative risk, at least in the setting of death and myocardial infarction, but also for many other secondary outcomes in the perioperative setting. There is an interesting finding that there are alternative scores like the DASI score or the measurement of BNP, which has been recommended, does appear to predictive accuracy. But I really want to stress the point that remember that these are just tools that we're using to help inform our patients, but they're actually still fairly inaccurate at the fundamental core of themselves. And keep that in mind when you're counseling individuals about the risks that they're assuming when they're making their informed consent decision around surgery, because it's difficult to strongly say that this is absolutely going to happen to you or not when we're limited by this predictive inaccuracy. So part of the art of medicine, I suppose. So will this change your practice? Well, Paxton, I think you said it best at the beginning. I always had a hard time and really hated asking patients about their functional capacity. It always seemed to open a Pandora's box of discussion and trying to figure out what they could do. And I think now, at least in the setting of informing perioperative risk, I don't need to do it anymore. So yes, I am changing my practice and following what my Canadian guidelines have already told me to do. So you can spend less time assessing functional capacity and more time writing prescriptions for Dabigatran. <laughs> exactly right. Okay, Paxton. Well, new show format, new season, but same old good stuff part of the show. My favorite segment on the rounds table. What have you got for us this week that's catching your eye? So Kieran, uh, as you know, I split my time between practicing general internal medicine as well as clinical addiction medicine. And in the world of addiction medicine, I've been following the debate on electronic cigarettes quite closely over the past couple of years. In fact, I recall an article that you did just earlier this spring uh, talking about them as a smoking cessation tool. So full disclosure, I, I don't necessarily believe in e-cigarettes as a smoking cessation tool, but I do believe in their potential as a form of harm reduction. I think they are far less harmful than your traditional combustible cigarettes. And I think that we do have data to support that, even if it is early days and we won't really understand the true implications of the rise of e-cigarettes for 10 or 20 years even. That being said, from a public health perspective, concerns continue to arise around whether the rise of e-cigarettes is renormalizing smoking, particularly among the youth. So with that, I read an article this week on NPR entitled, He Started Vaping as a Teen and Now Says Habit is Impossible to Let Go. Now this article goes through some of those public health concerns on e-cigarettes and sprinkles in some anecdotes around youth and adolescents who started smoking e-cigarettes quite young and talked about how prevalent these are in many of the high schools in North America. And it really is, I think, a sobering look into that other side of the coin, whereas even if e-cigarettes are less harmful than cigarettes, if they're renormalizing that activity of smoking, which we've come so far with over the past 20 years with respect to our public health campaigns, it really is worrisome as to where this will go and what are going to be implications for the next generation as they get older. Well, I have three young kids. Uh, thankfully, they're not quite into the years of vaping, but 
I'm going to keep in touch with you about this and keep up to date through your uh, helpful counsel. Okay, well, I came across an article about innovation, let's call it. And innovation is the new word in 2018 around medical literature and clinical trials. And this happened to be a clinical trial that looked at a self-applied wearable electrocardiogram patch that people just stick onto themselves, and it's a used as a screening tool for atrial fibrillation. This M-STOPS trial found that immediate continuous screening for two weeks may be equivalent to weekly or bi-weekly 30-second rhythm monitoring over a 12-month period in a population of similar risk. Now I hear there's an ongoing trial and study looking at the use of smartwatches for screening for atrial fibrillation. And I think that is an interesting way and an innovative way to use and apply consumer technology to try to improve our screening and overall care. If only I can think of something to do like that on the rounds table, then perhaps we would be making it big. But for now, I'll just continue to read about it and read in awe. Yeah, really interesting stuff. It's part of this, this whole rise in, in personalized medicine and in, in using data in medicine. So really curious to see where this goes because I think we're just starting to open the door to this world. Great. Breath of fresh air, deep breath. Everybody calm down. The end of Season 5, Episode 1. Paxton, thank you so much for coming on to the show and helping us kick off a new season on the rounds table. And thank you for agreeing to be one of our rotating co-hosts. We really are excited to see what you're going to bring to the table in the future. Always a pleasure, Kieran, and really looking forward to the new season. The rounds table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com Roundstable Podcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer Emily Hughes, audio editor Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director Grace Zhao, segment director Shaliza Halani, host director Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Roundstable Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.